What's going on, Maximal Being's Doc Mock here with Maximal Being Gut Health, Nutrition, and Fitness. Today joining me in California is Pora Shah, who you may know from our Reflux episode, and we also have G.I. Jeff, who is driving through a treacherous snowstorm presently. I can't wait to start discussing with them. You know, I remember uh, back in the 90s when, when YouTube appeared, there was this guy on YouTube, and he was wearing this pink unicorn t-shirt. And I remember him just making fun of people that had gluten sensitivity. And, you know, as gastroenterologists, we are here to tell you today that gluten sensitivity, whether it be celiac disease, which is a known medical diagnosis, or non-celiac gluten sensitivity are real. As always, I'm Doc Mock. I'm a therapeutic endoscopist. That's a GI doctor that deals with pancreatic obiliary disease as well as cancer. And I'm also a functional medicine practitioner. And joining me is GI Jeff. Hello, uh, Jeff Costanzo here. I am in the middle of driving through a snowstorm, so if I sound distracted, you'll understand why. I am a gastroenterology physician as well. I did my training with Doc Mock and Dr. Porish. Um, I'm in private practice gastroenterology based out of Eastern Pennsylvania. I do general gastroenterology, anything ranging from Crohn's disease to celiac to irritable bowel syndrome. I have personal and professional interest in nutritional counseling um, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, and overall sort of fitness and well-being. And I'm happy to be joining. Happy to have you. Por Dr. Pora Shah is also with us. You want to go yes, ahead and just absolutely. give the listeners? Absolutely, yeah. So. Thanks, for having, uh, thanks for having me on again. I definitely appreciate it. It's good to have a little mini reunion here with you guys, too. So Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, so uh, my name is Pora Shah. I'm also a general gastro gastroenterologist. Uh, just do kind of the, the basic run-of-the-mill bread-and-butter GI. You know, they say just, but these guys are <laughs> in there, they're in the trenches, they're coming in the middle of the night to yank pieces of steak out of your esophagus or maybe bread, given the topic. Um, they they are true medical heroes, so thanks to both of them. Um, and I certainly would not be sitting here today if it was not for both of them. You cannot supplement your way to health, but there are things that we need to add to our lives that can maximize our pathway to wellness. The American diet is virtually devoid of omega-3 fatty acids, which play a major role in cardiovascular disease, gut permeability, and mental health. Personally, I take omega-3s every night, and iHerb is the best place for clean, natural sources of supplements. I love the ZenWise Omega-3 Fatty Acid Supplement, which is free of fish burps and good for the environment. Head on over to MaximalBeing.com iHerb, that's I-H-E-R-B, and enter the code B as in boy, D as in dog, B as in boy, 5528, and receive 10% off your orders for all supplements. Maximize your supplements with iHerb. Welcome to Maximal Being a GI doc and ICU nurse that break down the science so you can exceed your gut health, nutrition, and fitness goals. So, let's smash the bro science and optimizing your health with your hosts, Doc Mock and R.N. Graham. So, celiac disease and gluten, amber waves of grain, it's in, you know, some of our nation's Theme songs, it, it's a staple in the American diet. Uh, corn and wheat comprise about 80% of, you know, dietary sources, whether it be fed to another animal. Um, but, you know, we're noticing more and more that people are developing these sensitivities to, to 
the celiac disease to, to gluten and developing things like celiac disease. Um, so just going back historically, you know, it was over 8,000 years ago that, um, you know, mankind had documented celiac disease all the way back to, to Greek when they, uh, to, to ancient Greek times, when um, a Greek physician noticed that individuals were kind of wasting away when they were eating wheat. Um, and so from that time period onwards onto the more modern centuries, um, I would say the biggest revolution in gluten therapy was in the 1950s with Margot Shiner. And she actually was able to biopsy the small bowel and find pathologic changes and diagnose celiac disease. And that's where this diet called the, the banana diet came into play, where they gave a bunch of kids bananas uh, who were wasting away from celiac disease and miraculously they got better. I'm going to turn it on over to Dr. Pora Shah and maybe Dr. Shah can just help educate the audience on who typically gets problems with gluten and celiac disease. Sure, yeah. So it, I think traditionally it's been a disease in children, uh, something that we see more frequently in children, uh, but obviously can present uh, in adulthood or progress into adulthood as well. Uh, and, and like Dr. Mock was saying, over time, uh, you know, our diet has changed uh, in the past, we were hunter-gatherers. We ate fruits, nuts, and sometimes meat, depending on if we were able to get that. Uh, and then as we became farmers, um, we started to grow more into wheat products and uh, things that we could farm and harvest and save and things like that. So over time, um, uh, for about, I would say, well, something like 2 million years or so, our bodies were adapted more to the hunter-gatherer lifestyle. And only in the last few thousand years, um, we've done more of the wheat thing. So that's why we tend to see it more. G.I. Jeff, do you have anything to add to that statement in terms of, you know, demographics? And Well, I mean, so demographically, I, you know, again, this is definitely a disease that you see in children. But when it's diagnosed in adulthood, there does seem to be a prevalence in white people and more specifically in people of sort of a Irish or Northern European descent. And that's for a number of different reasons. There are some genetic predispositions to this actual disease itself. Um, so just sort of in terms of how likely you think a, a diagnosis of celiac disease is in any particular patient, you kind of cater that to that to that person. So if you're seeing somebody who's Hispanic or African-American, the chances of them having true classic celiac disease in the sense of the word that we'll talk about in a bit are a little bit lower. Now that doesn't mean that they're not necessarily sensitive to gluten, but true celiac disease is generally seen a little bit more in white people of Northern European descent. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I mean, where we trained, it was a large African-American population. So I certainly, you know, we all saw African-American people with celiac disease. So don't think that it is just a disease of, of uh, you know, upper middle class white people. This this is a disease that affects everybody. And actually, the, one of the, the countries or the areas of the world that is has the highest rising prevalence of celiac disease is Southeast Asia. And it's because you know, was not really a staple in their diet until recently with Americanization or Westernization of a lot of the societies in Asia. And so now we're seeing more and more people develop gluten intolerances and celiac disease in Southeast Asia. Um, Dr. Shah, when, when you're thinking about gluten intolerances, somebody comes in and tells you, you know, I think I have gluten intolerance. What are the usual symptoms that they describe? Sure. Yeah. And the, the, the tricky thing with this is that a lot of the symptoms are very kind of generic abdominal symptoms. So uh, 
excess gas, so uh, passing gas, flatulence, burping, abdominal pain or discomfort, sometimes general things like fatigue, just being tired throughout the day, things like that. Uh, and sometimes, you know, more significant things like fevers, chills, things like that. Those are less common, of course, but but sort of just general uh, malaise symptoms are, are often there along with the, the standard GI symptoms. I know that I'm, I'm generally kind of cued into looking for celiac disease if somebody's complaining, and again, you do have sort of vague, non-specific symptoms in a lot of these patients, but you know the things that I tend to tend to zone in more would be chronic diarrhea, um, evidence of anemia, which is a low blood count without an other obvious source, and any unintentional weight loss. Now, occasionally you can get these sort of non-gastroenterology-related symptoms, such as there are certain skin rashes that you can get, um, and then people will describe things like brain fog or whatever. So the truth is that the number of symptoms associated with these conditions are, are many. Um, but from a GI standpoint, you can really get anything. I personally always look into chronic diarrhea and weight loss um, as, a, as a reason to specifically investigate celiac disease. Yeah. And, and I think that the, the manifestations are becoming more and more numerous. You know, uh, GI Jeff mentioned anemia, you know, most of your nutrients are absorbed in the small intestine and that's where celiac disease lives. And so if your small intestine ain't doing what it's supposed to, cause it's pissed off at you, you're not going to absorb those nutrients. And so you're going to get anemia. People can get osteoporosis um, and other micronutrient deficiencies. Um, some people even just have dental problems. Um, you know, we, we did allude to this a little bit in our discussion about uh, the microbiome Dr. Costanzo. Um, but why do people experience that brain fog specifically with gluten? Well, nobody knows for certain. Um, you know, I, I think that when you have a disease process and, and Dr. Mock, I think I'm, we're probably going to talk about this a little bit, um, you know, coming up, but true celiac disease um, is mediated, meaning sort of triggered by the immune system which means that when gluten sort of is encountered, your immune system's response is to attack the lining of, of the intestine. And that can lead to this sort of colloquial term that we call leaky gut. So you're getting these bacteria and toxins and they're called endotoxins and things like that that normally reside locked up inside the lining of your gut that are now spilling over into your bloodstream. And then they can get into your your brain and all that kind of stuff and cause all these other sort of other outside of the GI tract type symptoms. So it's related to physical damage uh, that a gluten whose immune system is predisposed to creating that problem. Yeah, I, I couldn't have put it better myself. You know, I, I it really is an immune process. So, you know, your body doesn't like to have too much inflammation, right? Imagine that you're you're sitting in your house and you, all you want to do is just relax and watch Netflix. But there's people that are storming through your door and you have to keep them out. I mean, maybe somebody that's as strong as, you know, Dr. Shaw and Dr. Costanzo here would have an easy time doing that, but I certainly would get tired eventually. And so you're, you just, you get tired from this constant immune attack mode that you're in. You know, an interesting thing that we did look at was uh, we, we pulled some research on whether or not the type of grain or historical grain makes a difference in terms of the inflammatory reaction. 
And uh, Dr. Shah, did you see any trends when you're looking through, say, like einkorn grain, like the ancient grains versus the more modern processed grains? Did you see anything that can help patients? Yeah. So, I, you know, when I, when I was looking through, what I did see is that the, I think in the past, the, the content of protein versus carbohydrates in the wheat has changed. But I believe from what I was able to discern from that, that it hasn't really changed the overall uh, effect uh, on celiac necessarily. But previously, there were, were higher uh, proportions of protein <clears throat> in the wheat, just the way that they um, uh, bred the wheat at that time. Uh, for for larger grains, and then over time they actually went back to a higher protein proportion uh, from a higher carbohydrate proportion. Jeff, do you have anything to add to that? Not a whole lot else to add for that. I agree with Dr. Shaw. Yeah, you know, uh, some will argue that we bred grain for resiliency and to last the winters. Uh, actually, when we looked at the historical perspectives um, in in some research that we pulled. You know, what they actually found in this article from their International Journal of Food Science and Nutrition is that a lot of the grains that we bred were really just to make bread the fastest. And really, that's all people were trying to do most of the time was get bread and bread products out of their grains. Um, one thing that they did notice is that the einkorn grain, the more traditional, which is diploid, so you have two molecules joined together as opposed to the more modern strains where it's hexaploid, meaning six molecules kind of packed in together, there's higher contents of what we call amylase trypsin inhibitors, which is a part of the wheat molecule that blocks your body's natural ability to break it down. And so although it wasn't a linear relationship, they did notice that, you know, some of the more modern ones people have a harder time with. Guys, what do you think? I mean, we do a lot of things to food now. Do you think that bleaching food versus, say, sprouting or fermenting food, does that does that do anything to our ability to uh, break down gluten? Dr. Shah? Uh, it's a good question. I honestly don't know the answer to it. Um, but I know that, you know, bleaching and things like that certainly takes away some of the nutrients. And, it, you know, maybe that could contribute to to the way that things are uh, processed within the system. Uh, the body may be used to having uh, more uh, diverse uh, group of elements at the same time. And by bleaching that, you may be taking some of the things away, which could cause that, or you're not getting the same nutrition that could, uh, you know, help the body with uh, a proper immune system. And so you could have an immune reaction due to that. But uh, honestly, I'm not 100% sure on that. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, if you want to take the sort of thousand foot view of this issue from the philosophical sense is that you know, you're looking essentially on, on a long enough timeline of the evolution of food products and farming and, and things like that, that has rapidly, rapidly outstripped the evolution of humans. So these things that we're doing to our food, you know, are introducing elements that our bodies have not yet caught up with the ability to sort of process. So we're talking a little bit about a disease, you know, specifically celiac that we're starting to see more and more of. Well, when you think about it, you know, what are we doing to our food? You know, you're processing it more and you're sort of manipulating these things to sort of get more resistant, you know, grains that, you know, it's going to be more weather resistant or so on and so forth or increased crop yield. And, you, you know, you're, you're manipulating the natural sort of structure of this, which makes it much more likely to have something embedded in it that our bodies are not accustomed to and therefore more likely to react to. 
Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I think both of you um, definitely agree that, you know, adding things to food, your body tends not to be happy with that. Definitely bleaching these products, not good. Versus on the flip side, you know, as GI docs, and we talked about this in our microbiome episode that like allowing natural products that live in our environment to ferment and have those uh, bacteria and yeast in our environment, break them down, definitely helps with digestion, makes your microbiome happy. Um, and, and, you know, the whole evolutionary perspective that we didn't eat grains that our ancestors didn't, it just is not true. We talked about this on another episode with, with Aaron Graham, that if you look at Neanderthal skeletons and they carbon date the food products that they ate, you actually can find evidence of some grains in a lot of their teeth. So that tells us two things. Number one, Neanderthals didn't floss. And number two, you know, that they ate some grains. Um, so uh, just switching gears here a little bit, uh, Porish, how do you approach a patient in terms of diagnostic workup when you're thinking about a gluten intolerance or celiac disease? Sure, sure. So of course, first taking the history, uh, getting the symptoms down, like Jeff had mentioned, you want to look for diarrhea. Over the longer term, they may have some weight loss, some anemia, things like that. And then, uh, of course, getting the generalized symptoms also. And then starting with blood work. Uh, more recently, we look at uh, a, a test called the TTG test, tissue transglutaminase. Uh, and that's uh, an IgA type of test. So checking the IgA level is important as well, um, because if that level is low, then the TTG, TTG test itself may be inaccurate. Um, so those are pretty, they're both fairly sensitive and specific tests. I guess the, the TTG is a very, very specific and sensitive test uh, and gives us a good starting point. Um, once you have uh, uh, an abnormal value for the TTG, then usually what we'll do is an endoscopy test, get some biopsies in, in the duodenum uh, to get um, to see if there is damage to the mucosal lining. Right. So uh, what Dr. Shaw said is correct. I mean, so the, it's essentially a combination of tests, um, both in the blood, you're looking for like antibody molecules that your immune system is creating in response to gluten that ultimately do lead to that sort of damage to the intestinal lining that I was talking about before. The, the sort of, you know, depending on how you look at it, the confirmatory uh, test is actually taking a biopsy of the beginning portion of the small intestine and that's done painlessly uh, during an upper endoscopy. And there are certain very specific features that we look for under the microscope. And that's how the diagnosis is achieved. Um, understanding, of course, that the blood tests are good, but not perfect. I mean, no test is perfect. Um, and it all has to be taken in the proper context. Um, the other important thing is this, the, the timing and the diet do matter. So if you have a particularly motivated person who thinks they have celiac disease and they eliminate gluten from their life, and the, by the time they see a doctor like us and we do the testing for it, the risk is that it becomes falsely negative. So the biopsies look normal and the blood work looks normal when in fact that person actually does have celiac disease, but the fact that they've washed gluten out has made everything look normal. And that has implications in the future. Yeah, that, that's really well put. I mean, you know, I think there is a lot of diagnostic value in eliminating gluten from your diet and seeing how you feel. Um, but that said, you know, gluten is everywhere. You know, Dr. Shah, when you're counseling patients about eliminating gluten from their diet, what are the three main like food groups and then what other non-food sure. products do you talk about? Yeah. 
So of course, wheat wheat is the most uh, common product, but also barley and rye. So a lot of cereals, a lot of breads, pastas, things like that um, have uh, gluten in them. And then the other thing that's unfortunate is, is gluten-containing products are often used as thickeners in a lot of other foods, particularly if you eat out of the house. So uh, I think if you were going to be doing this testing where you, or, or, or trials where you really wanted to be truly gluten-free, the best thing is probably to be making your own food uh, or looking at packaging that very specifically says gluten-free uh, because things you can very unintentionally have a large load of gluten by eating out or eating at someone else's house or not really now, nowadays because of COVID, but uh, in the past if you'd go to someone else's house and they were preparing the food. And unfortunately, some restaurants say things are gluten-free and they may not realize that they need to use completely separate um, pots, pans, utensils, things like that. So inadvertently, there could be a small amount of gluten in those products. Uh, and then, of course, beer uh, is a big one, too. <laughs> yep. Jeff, do you have anything to add to that? In terms sure. The, the, things that you the, thing, the things you classically hear about are, you know, pasta and bread and beer um, but it really can hide everywhere. I mean, so soy sauce is a big one that contains gluten. Um, and it really can be quite sort of nuanced. I mean, I actually had a patient yesterday who had, does have celiac disease and they, you know, there's apps on the phone and all this kind of stuff. And, and the available options out there for gluten-free eating is, are, are really a lot. Um, but they said apparently, and I don't remember specifically which one, but one particular brand of mayonnaise is gluten-free, whereas another is not. So it really can be that sort of detailed and nuanced. So it, the, the problem is you have these classic sort of things that everybody knows about, breads, pastas, whatever, but it really can hide in a lot of places. Yeah, and, and that also includes things like hair care products, deodorants, shampoos, conditioners. I had a patient that swore up and down to me that she was gluten-free and she had a dog. And so, you know, and I believed her, you know, she was like, you know, vigilant, came in with diaries, like everything seemed to line up. But what was happening is that her dog, her dog treats had gluten in them. And so when her, when she would get home from work, the dog would lick her face because it's so excited to see her. And that was enough to send her wow. celiac disease out of whack. So, so if everybody in your household, if you do have celiac disease or if you have gluten sensitivity needs to be gluten free as well. But, you know, what foods are fair game? I mean, wheat, rye, barley, that's in like everything. But what can you eat, Porsche? What, what sure, yeah. So there's still a lot of other food groups. Um, you know, all, most most pure proteins, most meats are not going to have anything. Of course, if they're breaded, that's a different story. But pure meats are not going to have it. Uh, vegetables, pretty much all vegetables you can eat without any issue. Again, avoiding anything that's breaded or or, or has any uh, product like that on that. Uh, and then uh, legumes are good. Uh, and then things like rice, if you want to get your carbohydrates in, also work pretty well. Yeah, I'd agree with that. The only thing that I would say that's... Um can potentially be in a gray area is that um, oats, but generally pure oats are considered to be safe uh, in patients containing uh, on a gluten-free diet. And then what do you guys think in terms of, you know, how long should somebody be off of gluten before they should start to feel better? Like what's the time frame? Yeah, generally, I think within a few weeks to a few months, people will start to feel better. Even within a few days of cutting out gluten, a lot of times people have significant improvement in their symptoms. 
Uh, and then, you know, keeping a close eye on things during that time is important because if you do really, really well for a couple of days, a couple of weeks and you start to feel better and then you slack a little bit, the symptoms may come back and you may think you're doing uh, well by keeping a gluten-free diet. So you really truly have to keep a close eye on it. But usually within a few days to a few weeks, you'll start to improve. And then within a few months, oftentimes things are, are can be back to normal. Yeah, I agree. So I, you know, the, before we kind of embark on a gluten challenge with one of my patients, I, you know, I basically say that, you know, this needs to be a commitment. You can't do gluten free five out of the seven days in, of a week. I mean, it's got to be total. Um, and I usually say it's, you're going to expect to see significant improvement on the order of six to eight weeks to my patients. Yeah, I agree 100%. When well, we're uh, enacting something called an elimination diet, where you get rid of lactose, gluten, soy, peanuts, a lot of the more common food allergens, you know, I, I say six weeks is really the best time period to uh, see whether or not somebody is symptomatic or not. Here's another question for you both, because I know you've seen it. What do you do when somebody comes in and they either have negative biopsies and a positive blood test? or they have a negative blood test and biopsies that allude to celiac disease, or they have some other random blood test that's positive. What do you do then? Yeah. So uh, the first thing you can do is always repeat the tests, uh, repeat the blood work and see, confirm that they're not, uh, confirm that they are having gluten in their diet initially. Uh, and then there's other testing that, uh, other blood tests that we can do, uh, the HLA DQ2 and DQ8, uh, which essentially can rule out uh, whether celiac is uh, uh, on our differential diagnosis. So, yeah, I agree with that uh, completely. You know, occasionally you just have to repeat the exams. Uh, it's not the most elegant way to approach it, but you never really know how things are going to change over time, um, especially if the diet is also in flux. Um, when Dr. Shaw was talking about HLA, DQ2, uh, and DQ8, these are genetic abnormalities that essentially help your immune system recognize and process gluten um, and start that inflammatory cascade that ultimately leads to, leads to that damage. What I'll tell you is this, you know, it's an interesting test because if you do not have mutations in HLA-DQ2 and 8, you do not have celiac disease. However, if you do have mutations, that does not necessarily mean that you do have celiac disease. So it's one of those things that can be helpful to rule a disease out. Um, so it's sort of considered adjunctive testing in that regard um, when the diagnosis is in question. Uh, the only other thing that I'll say at this point is that if I get to a point where repeat testing is still sort of you know unclear, um, there's some clinical concern for gluten sensitivity versus celiac disease, that's when I really just have an honest conversation with my patient and I tell them, I said, listen, I think it's time to just do this and see what happens, see how the lab changes, see how the symptoms improve and things like that. So that's, that's sort of my, my last resort would be say, let, let, let's have you commit to a, a trial. And I insist that it's a trial because people get scared when it's forever uh, of a gluten-free diet. Yeah, we, we do offer, uh, we partner with this lab called Cyrex and, and Cyrex Labs also offers kind of an extrapolated more gluten sensitivity based profile. And I mean, the science is pretty concrete and, and, you know, we all kind of cringe as like on the Western side of medicine, when we see a, somebody order a DPG IgA or something that's a little bit off color, but, you know, honestly, if that led the patient to being gluten free, 
and that's helped the patient. Well, I mean, that's really what matters in my opinion is whether or not it does help the patient. And again, that, that six week trial, I mean, that's really the sweet spot. Now here's another question. So, you know, um, does glute, being gluten-free have any benefits outside of just celiac disease and the GI tract? Yeah, well, I, I think in general, um, you know, a lot of my patients that come in with any kind of vague GI symptoms, I often recommend uh, a low-carbohydrate diet or a gluten-free type of diet, um, because I think in general, those can cause a lot of bloating, whether or not you have a lot of, uh, whether or not you have celiac disease or a true gluten sensitivity, oftentimes they can cause some bloating. So uh, I think, you know, there is, even even if you don't have a true diagnosis, um, avoiding some gluten-containing products can certainly make you feel a lot better. So I, I would I would agree with that. The only thing I would want to add is that this, so, the, you know, you could argue that celiac disease versus sort of a non-celiac gluten sensitivity are both treated the same way, which is gluten-free diet. But there's a few important distinctions. So the, the reason to stick with it for life when the, the diagnosis is truly celiac disease um, is that you run the risk of malabsorbing vitamins and minerals and things like that, okay? Um, there are increased risks of bone disease. There are, are increased risks of lymphoma of the small intestine. These risks are not seen in patients who do not have celiac disease. The benefit, therefore, in eliminating gluten in somebody who does not have celiac disease would be mostly for symptoms, bloating, discomfort, whatever other symptoms happen to be present in that patient. And in general, it, it's sort of a cleaner way to eat. I mean, you're seeing less preservatives in your food and fewer ingredients, which is usually just a nicer, cleaner way to eat. So it's overall healthier. Yeah, no, that, that's great. Um, and I think you also brought up the interesting point of lymphoma. And so, you know, often we'll think lymphoma, it's a T-cell lymphoma that is linked with uh, celiac disease when, when the patient truly is gluten-free, has been gluten-free for a long period of time, and yet still has not had response to symptoms. Obviously, there are other conditions that can exist with it, like microscopic colitis, which causes, you know, increased white blood cells in the colon can look normal. And again, it's a biopsy diagnosis, but lymphoma is the thing that I think we all fear when that that is the case. Um, Jeff, you read a little bit about some of the more fancy nuance and new celiac disease therapies. Do you want to go ahead and just list a couple of those? Uh, I, you broke up for a second there. I'm driving through some, some badness right now. So, uh, what were you saying there, Doc Mock? Yeah. So, um, do you want to go ahead? You know, there are some new therapies that are coming to the market for celiac disease. I know that you've read up on a few of those. Do you want to go ahead and just uh, allude to a few of them or to the general mechanism of a few of them? Yeah. So it's, it's pretty interesting stuff. So, you know, understand before I get into any kind of details is that, um, you know, none of these have been widely FDA approved. Some of them are in sort of phase two clinical trials. Um, there's a number of different experimental modalities that are being looked at. You know, the, the theory is that this, you know, it's, it can be hard and frustrating to stick to a gluten-free diet for life, um, you know, for a number of reasons. So the whole idea is, can we come up with something else that will allow people with celiac disease to actually ingest gluten um, and minimize that damage? So 
understanding of a course that, you know, without getting into too many sort of science details, there are multiple different steps that occur from the moment that you ingest gluten until the moment that your immune system starts destroying the lining of your intestines. You know, it's when your body breaks the gluten down, when your immune system recognizes it, sort of processes it and shows it to other cells in your immune system to initiate that inflammatory cascade. So suffice to say that there are multiple steps that occur from the moment that you ingest gluten until the moment your immune system starts attacking the lining of the intestine. And any number, any one of those multiple steps is a potential target for treatment. So I've seen things called endopeptidases, which are molecules that you would take, basically medications you take at the time of eating gluten that help break down gluten in such a way that your immune system doesn't get as upset by it. Um, there are molecules that make gluten basically not show up uh, uh, to your immune system. There are molecules that, and when I say molecules, I mean basically medications, okay, um, that uh, basically uh, block your immune system from forming these inflammatory changes that will ultimately lead to the destruction of the lining. I've even seen something as crazy as actually infecting people with hookworms um, to prevent celiac disease damage, which obviously you know, it's not a particularly palatable option. Um, but suffice to say that a lot of these things show promise in early trials, phase one to two, um, and are being actively studied right now to allow people to eat gluten, even in the presence of celiac disease. And then, you know, I guess a more of a personal question for both of you, you know, are either of you gluten-free or are either of you relatively gluten-free in terms of your lifestyle? Uh, no, <laughs> short answer. No, uh, I, I like my bread too much. Uh, thankfully I don't have too many issues with it, but there are times where, you know, you eat too much of it for a while and you're like, okay, I got to cut back a little bit. So, uh, I will, I will go through phases where I do a lower carb diet, which naturally becomes a low gluten diet. And I, I noticed that I do feel a lot better during those times, whether it's not, it's because I'm just not stuffing my face as much, or it's actually because of a gluten-free diet. I don't know. Um, but, but it certainly does make me feel a lot better when I do it. But in general, I, I kind of try to balance things. Yeah. So I, I, I you know, I, I'm a diabetic uh, in case people didn't know and almost hated this. So I eat healthy, but I don't necessarily restrict. Um, you know, I like to follow the philosophy of, you know, read ingredient labels, uh, the fewer the ingredients, the better. And if you can't pronounce an ingredient, you probably shouldn't eat it. Um, you know, during occasional periods of time, I will count macros um, and weigh and measure my food. I don't do that quite as often as I used to because of the baby <laughs> and there's time, but uh, I don't uh, sort of wrote eliminate gluten from my life just because I don't physically personally need to. Yeah, I would I would say that I'm not 100% gluten free, but I'm probably like 99 or 95% gluten free, not for any sort of GI upset, but just it like, I just feel better when I don't eat it, I get less kind of joint stuff and the less of the brain fog. Um, you know, for those of you out there that are looking for a weight loss strategy, you know, one of the strategies that we utilize is eliminating that gluten and, and as a result, you eliminate a lot of processed junk from your body you will instantly lose weight. And the reason being is that, you know, gluten, um, which is a protein do, does attract a lot of water. And so when you eliminate it from your, your diet, you will drop a lot of water weight. So you may notice going gluten-free that you lose weight instantly. It's not that you're wasting away, it's that you're losing water weight. 
I think with that, we're going to go to a brief commercial break and we will be back with GI Jeff and Dr. Porsche Shah. What's going on, Maximal Beings? It's Doc Mock here. Many of you are returning to the gym now, but some are not going back. Regardless of what you plan, Rogue has got the right gear to fit your needs. I personally own a barbell set and love it. The black ops shorts are sweat resistant and flexible for getting deep in your squats. Head on over to MaximalBeing.com slash Rogue for our referral link. Order three items and they ship for free. And as usual, it's Doc Mock, and I'm here to maximize your pathway to wellness. If you're stuck at home and cannot make it to the grocery store, delivery may be the best way to stay clean and healthy. Instacart is the national leader in the direct-to-home delivery service. With numerous major chains and food from smaller stores, you can get those local veggies sent directly to your doorstep. Head on over to MaximalBeing.com slash Instacart and maximize your nutrition today. Okay, and we're back with uh, uh, GI Jeff, Dr. Jeff Costanzo, who is uh, still alive through a treacherous snowstorm. On the way, probably... Not the most pleasant drive. (laughs) He probably has more work awaiting him at home than he did at work today with a new baby, and uh, somebody has a new baby on the way, don't you? Yeah, yeah, we do. We do. Just a few weeks. uh, Any minute now. Exciting. I, I know that um, I've talked to you both about exercise time and time again, but, you know, Dr. Shaw, what's your favorite exercise that, that you like to do? Yeah, my so my favorite is always chest and back day in general. Um, and I, I really like doing heavier weight dumbbell uh, bench presses. Um, but through this pandemic, we actually got a Peloton a few years ago. And I used it, you know, once in a while, but now being home more, um, I've been using the Peloton a lot more and I, I really, really enjoy it. I never really saw the, uh, the, the, the thrill of it in the past before I had really done it, but now I ride it almost every day, uh, in addition to sometimes doing an additional workout. So, uh, well, I mean, I, you know, my, my past, my passion here is CrossFit. So every day the exercises are different. Uh, it's a combination of Olympic weightlifting, um, you know, gymnastics and things like that. I, you know, so I just like the, the variability in, in physical fitness. Um, you know, in terms of compound movements, I really love uh, Olympic weightlifting. I think particularly the snatch, uh, just because it, it's sort of, it's such a nuanced movement. Um, in terms of sort of like the the traditional bread and butter um, lifting exercises, I think when done properly, maybe the most important uh, lift is the squat, the barbell squat, because it just, you know, it's not just your legs, it's really everything. And, I, and I, I think that, you know, it helps you sort of maintain functionality and things like that. So I make it a point to try to do some version of a squat, um, of which there are many different versions, uh, a couple of times a week. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I, I read an article one time that said, if you're going to do one exercise in your lifetime, you should do squats. Uh, and the reason being is that as you get older, a lot of people end up in nursing homes for the simple fact that they can't get themselves off a toilet seat because they don't have those leg muscles. So I also do my squats. <laughs> I don't want to get yep. stuck on a toilet. <laughs> no. Yeah, same. And if you want to learn more about the snatch, I know I learned a ton from GI Jeff. There is an article at maximalbeing.com in our free section. Um, switching gears a little bit to the nutrition side of things, you know, Porish, what is the craziest diet that you have tried or that one of your patients has told you that they have tried? Uh, 
Oh man, I, I don't do too many of the crazy diets. I'm a vegetarian in general, so um, you know I try to eat healthy. Um, certainly, being a vegetarian, there's there's two sides of it. There's the healthy vegetarian where you eat lots of vegetables, lots of protein, and and some of the good stuff as well. And then there's the unhealthy side where you eat pizza and pasta and things like that all the time. So I try to avoid that. Um, I've tried to do liquid diets just for a day or two, um, which isn't so bad. Uh, Long term, of course, is not fun. Uh, but some of the crazy ones that the, my patients have told me are like the cayenne and lemon juice, maple syrup diets, and yes. just things that just sound awful. And I assume they lose weight just because they vomit right afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. Jeff? I was going to say, uh, there was a brief period of time where I went like sort of loosely paleo. Um, you know, for me personally, it just wasn't a perfect fit for me, although I do like the philosophy of the paleo diet. Um, I'm more personally a fan of just kind of monitoring um, the quality of the foods you eat, um, occasionally counting uh, counting macros, things like that. I've had patients do some pretty pretty crazy things. You know, the the AIP diet has come up a lot recently, and you know, it's the anti-inflammatory you know diet, which I think is okay. There's not a lot of fiber in it. I had one patient who was a raw vegan, and on top of that, had celiac disease. So I honestly don't know what he ate besides quinoa and beans. Um, so raw veganism is one thing that I can't really wrap my head around, but I guess if it's good to you, then just go for it. And some might argue that, you know, just eating beans and quinoa all the time, there's lectins and beans and lectins are super pro-inflammatory and poke holes in your gut. So, you know, uh, wow, that's a tough spot to be in. I also oh, I yeah, agree. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of the paleo principles. I like the idea. It's the stringent paleo. I don't agree with that, both for the evolutionary argument, the, the GI digestive component. We know that your body can digest some grains um, and how restrictive it is. I mean, 2% Greek yogurt. I mean, that that food is like a superfood, like 20 grams of protein. You're getting calcium. I mean, sign me up for that. And probiotic. Yes. Um so what, what's, um, you know, Porsche, what's your favorite health book or, you know, book related to health and wellness that you've, you've read and, and why? Yeah. So, um, the, the, I think the book that had the most impact on me was probably the four hour body. Um, there's a lot of random stuff in the book too, but the diet part itself helped me. Uh, I think, you know, we, we go through a lot of training, a lot of rigorous training, a lot of time consuming training. So for me after med school, I think between residency and fellowship, I, I gained about 15 pounds or so. Uh, uh, which I wanted to lose then during our fellowship, actually, when we were all together uh, in our training. And so um, someone had mentioned that book to me, and it's basically, they call it like a slow carb diet, I guess. And basically your carbs come, it's essentially a low carb diet, but your, your carbs come from higher uh, nutrition sources like legumes, beans, things like that. Uh, and then eat lots of vegetables. You basically don't eat anything that's white or processed or things like that. So a lot of the similar things that we've already been talking about, um, but it just put it in a little bit of a different perspective uh, and it uh, uh, expanded on it a little bit more. Um, so I think that one probably helped me the, the most. And I did end up losing my 15 pounds uh, at that point, which was nice. Another good thing is that you can drink a glass of wine on that diet. So per day. <laughs> so that was also helpful. <laughs> is that a bonus? Huh? Always a bonus. Something to be said about. So like, I, go ahead, Jeff. No, no, no. I was gonna go ahead. Go ahead, Shaper. After you. I was just gonna be. I was just gonna say there's something to be said about low glycemic food. Like your body just must be happier doing that. Yeah. Back to you, Jeff. No, I mean, so <laughs> leisure reading has been a bit of a luxury lately. Um, the uh, the the brain gut connection uh, microbiome. Uh, I think his last name is Meyer, Dr. Meyer. 
uh, was a pretty fun book. It sort of just shows how various uh, dietary, I think he's, he focuses a lot on the Mediterranean diet and how that can kind of change the overall composition of the gut microbiome and what sort of far-reaching effects that has for overall health, um, which is a book that I enjoyed. Uh, another book in terms of overall lifestyle is a book called Atomic Habits um, that uh, just sort of goes through sort of like the process of developing, you know, healthy sort of, you know, lasting, maintainable good habits throughout the day, uh, as a, you know, as it pertains to your diet and wellness and things like that. So those are the two books I'd recommend. Yeah, I, I've read both of those. I, I love Atomic Habits, especially if you're wanting to just uh, make something a habit and learn your own conditioning and learning flaws and abilities to implement things, um, which, you know, now that it's the new year is super important. Um, Porish, do you want to go ahead and just, you know, briefly summarize for the listeners what, what we kind of talked about today and then... Um, sure. We'll yeah. Let Jeff, hopefully, get home safely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, we we're talking about celiac disease and gluten sensitivity. Uh, celiac disease is a, a condition where uh, gluten is not properly, uh, or gluten can cause an inflammatory response. And there's certain blood tests that we can use, and then uh, confirm that diagnosis with uh, biopsies of the small intestine. Uh, gluten seven sensitivity can cause a lot of the similar symptoms, but doesn't necessarily have the abnormal blood uh, findings or the biopsy findings. In there as well. Uh, and then the main treatment is going to be a gluten-free diet. So avoiding things like barley, wheat, rye, and anything that contains those. And unfortunately, there's a lot of other foods that may contain additives or, or components of, that may con contain gluten in them. So uh, you have to be very careful and look at everything very closely that, that might contain gluten. Right. So I, I think that was pretty well said. I mean, you know, we, just, we discussed sort of what symptoms may be present in somebody who's sensitive to gluten. Um, the important distinction to make between true celiac disease and non-celiac gluten sensitivity is the fact that these things are, are mediated, celiac disease is mediated by your immune system, and that has some potential long-term consequences. Um, you know, the, the important thing is this, the, the treatment, although you can argue is the same uh, for either condition, which is the gluten-free diet, you know, is really considered a long-term thing. I mean, in celiac disease, it's recommended that it's lifelong. So, you know, I can't underscore enough the importance of having a proper working relationship with your gastroenterologist and really even a dietitian for routine checkups just to make sure that you're doing things as properly as you possibly can. Yeah, if you need a gut health checkup or a nutrition evaluation, if you think you have celiac disease and you know, nobody's listening to you, you know, we are here for you at Maximal Being. If you want to reach out to any of these fine gentlemen, shoot us an email at team at maximal being, or you can leave us a message on the speak pipe right on the website. Um, and as always, uh, I'm Doc Mock, and I'm here with GI Jeff Costanzo and Dr. Boris Shaw, and we are here to maximize your pathway to wellness. What's going on, Maximal Beings? Doc Mock here. If you haven't done so already, leave us a comment and hit the subscribe button. Let your friends and family know that way we can get the word out and continue to bash the bro science.